Are you a business owner looking for real advice and input? You're in the right place. From concept to launch to growth, funding and beyond. Welcome to Startup Hustle with your hosts. One once sold a business for $150 million. The other, the author of Million Dollar Bedroom. Here are your hosts of Startup Hustle, Matt DeCourcy and Matt Watson. And we're back. Another episode of Startup Hustle. Matt DeCourcy here with Josh Parsons, who'll be sitting in for Matt Watson today. Hey, Josh. Hey, Matt. How's it going? I'm doing pretty good, except for one thing. I am supposed to say that this podcast is brought to you by Fullscale.io, and after a hundred and some episodes, it's hard to do because I always say, and we're back. You can even see I've got a huge note to even do that here. Nice. So now that we know that I'm not pretty good at, I'm not any good at following instructions, we'll get into all the instructions we created for ourselves, but I'll go ahead and introduce you. You are the co-founder and the COO of Backlot Cars. Is this true? That's right. <laughs> all right. So here in Kansas City, you guys have made some noise recently, and we're going to talk about all kinds of great stuff. Um, looking forward to that, but what is Backlot Cars? What do you guys do? All right. Well, um, yeah, other than the silly name, uh, we're a dealer-to-dealer wholesale marketplace. So business-to-business solution for automotive wholesale. Uh, we do a lot of different things. Um, one of the things that we do is help our dealers um, on both the buy and the sell side of the marketplace efficiently source inventory and get rid of inventory. Uh, we also provide inventory uh, finance solutions for buyers and trans- and transport solutions for the cars they buy. So when you... Now, as a co-founder, obviously you and how many other co-founders do you have? So there's a total of four of us. Okay. Were you guys, I mean, you were probably car guys at some point. Uh, two of us were in the car business, uh, had worked, I'd owned a dealership before. Okay. Uh, also worked for Mannheim Auto Auctions, which is owned by Cox Automotive. Uh, they own Auto Trader. They own Vin Solutions. They own now. Vin Solutions. Yeah. Uh, and and, yeah. and where and Watson, where are you? <laughs> it's kind of, we never know. Well, we do know when Matt's going to be here, but yeah, Matt's gone to visit our office in the Philippines. So, but yeah, he, uh, uh Cox did purchase Ben Solutions. They did. And I think, that, well, I, technically I think Auto Trader did and then maybe Cox owned them, but who knows? So, yeah. All right. So you had a background in the car industry. Another one of your co-founders did as well. That's right. Um, what made you like any good business has to solve a problem. Yep. And in order for that problem to be solved, most entrepreneurs and founders have experienced it firsthand. Yeah. Yeah, I think um, we experienced it on both sides. Uh, so as a as a dealer that was a buyer, so owning a small independent dealership, uh, one of the things I saw was the type of cars that I wanted to buy. You couldn't buy those online. Give me an example. So if you're wanting to buy a seven or $8,000 car online, uh, the, the big incumbents, so your Odessa's, your Mannheim's, uh, these big auctions, they're okay selling cars online that are right off of lease. So they're really good at telling you about the physical condition of the car, not so good on the mechanical side. Okay. So if you're buying a $7,000 so, car. So those cars are typically a little older, a little more beat down maybe. Or, right, right. So you don't know what you're getting when you buy that online. That's it right. It could show up and blow up on day one. Or it might already be blown up. Okay, sure. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. And uh, so so it's really difficult to make a good decision on what you should pay for a car like that online. So that was one of the problems that we saw. The other problem we saw was there's a massive inefficiency in the marketplace. So right now, the status quo is if, if you're a dealer and you want to sell wholesale inventory, there's kind of two places you sell it. You either have a wholesaler come into your dealership and offer you money for that car. Maybe you have two or three wholesalers, but it's really hard to set a market price when you only have two or three people bidding on something. Okay. Um, the other way is you take it to a physical auto auction. 
And that car might or might not get put out online. Um, it's usually limited to the physical constraints of who shows up to the auction. And uh, so one of the things we saw was that didn't make a lot of sense. There wasn't too many things left that were being sold that way. You know, the stock market, you watched like Wall Street back in the mm-hmm. 80s. You know, you've got all these guys running around the floor of, of Wall Street, you know, trading tickets for orange juice or whatever. There aren't even people on the floor yeah. of the exchange anymore. That doesn't exist yeah. anymore. So we were kind of like, it's kind of silly. It, it still existed with cars and you had to wait for a weekly liquidation event for everybody to go buy these cars. And so we said, Hey, the ideal solution would be if dealers could sell these cars on their lot directly to another dealer without sure. the auction. So that was where we kind of came up with the idea. Um, and you know, things kind of evolved from there. Okay. So, you know, I, I think a lot of people are, are not aware of, you know, we know that you get a car, you can go buy it at a dealership or you buy it from an individual or maybe someone gives it to you. Right. Right. Or those are, those have to be the three overwhelming ways to acquire a vehicle. Absolutely. Right? Um, but I don't, I think a lot of people just don't really have a strong understanding about what happens to your car. You ever wonder what happened to your car after you traded it in? Now I do have a little bit of understanding, but it does, like you said, gets auctioned off or it goes through a number of different things. I've right. known a few people that, go to those auctions and, and they are, they, they do tell me that, you know, there's a wild fluctuation. Maybe they get a great deal, maybe not, or, uh, you know, and, they, and you don't know what you're buying either. Right. Like, right. Yeah. You, you don't know what you're just buying what you see and hoping for the best. Right. Yeah. You can check the car out. I mean, they do provide some guarantees, but again, you're still pretty minimal. Yeah. It's pretty minimal, but then also you're, you're limited to physically what you can go look at. So with us, our solution was we inspect all the cars, we post them out nationwide and we have dealers all over the country that make offers on them. So, so okay. So with Backlot and, and you guys know, I love it when you're interactive, go to backlotcars.com. Yeah. And uh, unless you're a car dealer, you're kind of going to be stopped right there because it's limited dealer to dealer only. So use your imagination yep. and, and Josh's voice to guide yourself through <laughs> the rest of don't, that. Don't presence. do that. <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, and like you mentioned, there's, there's an issue with it, but okay. So you just said, that you deal with inspection. So you, right. you guys have to be all over the place. Though. We are. Yeah. We've got over a hundred inspectors, um, out in the field looking at cars every single day. So they're just out crawling the world. I mean, yeah, they're so, they're So you, obviously you're going to locate some of them regionally or whatever. What are some of the areas you cover? So right now we're as far West as California and then the Pacific Northwest and as far East as, uh, Georgia. And we've just made hires in the Northeast. So we plan to be pretty much in all of the lower 48 by the end of the year. So you guys show up at dealer A yep, and they've taken in five trades over the weekend. And so here's another thing too, is like that dealer is like they, the cash flow, they yeah. want to, they have out, they have funded in some way what they gave you as a trade. That's right. And they need to eat now. Okay. So I just sold a Ford Raptor. Yep. Um, I mean, I, I didn't clean it. I did a little bit. Right. I like ran it through like a $5 car wash and like like pulled all my shit out of the inside. Yep. I didn't do much past that. So I uh, sold it to CarMax. Yep. Uh, just because it's easy. How many miles did it have on it? Like 50,000. Yeah. So they're going to keep that in retail. Yeah. Yeah. And I, and I figured they flip it. But in order to do that, I think a lot of people don't realize what has to occur. Like it has to be detailed. It has to be checked over. Oh, yeah. Like a whole lot of different yeah, stuff. CarMax is, uh, I mean, they charge for it, but they, they provide sure. second to none reconditioning on their right. cars. So when you buy a car there, I mean, you know, it's been run through their shop and it's, it meets their standards. So, but, um, but not all dealers are equipped or, or, or wanting to do that. No. And even CarMax, like, so CarMax only keeps about 30 to 40% of the cars they buy from the public, like what you did. 
the other 60%, they're actually the third largest dealer auction in the country behind okay. the other two that I mentioned, the Dessa and Mannheim. Yeah. So I've so, never heard of those, but yeah. I, I've heard of CarMax. Yeah. Yeah. So CarMax is the, the retail facing. So if you're going to sell your car, they're kind of the one that people tend to go to. Sure. Um, that, well, that's why I went there. Cause yeah. like, I mean, I, I, well, I, so I've sold a couple cars there, but there was a third one I sold a while back that I didn't get the price I was hoping for. The other two, I was like, you know what, if they give me above X, right. And, and I was in and out the door 20 yeah. minutes. I took an Uber home. Yeah. It's, and, and then took my other car and, and deposited the check and yeah. it was game over. And that, and that, well, that felt convenient, but there's clearly a whole bunch of stuff that needs to go on the back end. So, yeah. So say like it's another dealer that's, let's say a Toyota dealership up the street. Um, and you take a, you know, 2005 Camry with 200,000 miles, you know, the Toyota dealership's not going to retail that right. car. Well, so they've got to get who wants that. Right. I mean, someone does somewhere, but yeah. that's the car that you would typically buy off of like Craigslist. Right. When you're 19 and you're like paying with $20 bills. Right. Right. And there's, you know, and it runs. So do you guys help, do you help move cars like that? Oh too? yeah. Yeah. Okay. We sell, I mean, we'll sell cars anywhere from $50 to 50,000, but you know, a lot of the, the name backlot cars is typically the stuff that dealers want to get rid of. That's actually a great point. I yeah. and hadn't really considered that. That is that like, uh, you're like, Hey, you're here to buy the new bands. No, I don't have no. that kind of money. Let's, let's go out back. Go in the Let's back go out back. Yeah. 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 So, uh, <laughs> the no. $50 car, <laughs> yeah. no, but all right. So the $50 car, is that just more about getting it out of there? Yeah, it's scrap. That's just, just like, want... that's like a trip to the dump. That's right. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. I might go to like pick and pull or something like that. We're going to pull some parts off of it and then they're done with it. Okay. So back to you guys starting this and you realize that there's some issues and stuff like this now. And I'm going to jump a little ahead so we can then go back and go back through it. Yeah. But before we started, you're talking about you deal with dealer to dealer wholesale. You have elements of inventory finance and you deal with shipping logistics. That's right. And we're going to travel back through those. Cause yeah. so here's the thing is, and I, did you do all of those right away or did you keep adding these components as the business group? No, we, we actually added them as the business group. Right. But I would say from day one, you know, when, you know, my co-founder and I, Justin, which were the, you know, we, it was kind of our idea when we first started talking about this and really early on, we realized like we couldn't do it alone. So I give, you know, your co-founder, Matt, I give him a lot of credit because he probably didn't even remember meeting with us, but we reached out to him to see if he'd wanted to grab coffee or do I lunch. I bet he does. Did and you meet uh, him for coffee? We, we met him for lunch. And, By the uh, way, he's really good about that, isn't he? Yeah, it was but great. That's I mean, how I met Matt. Is it really? Like, yeah, that's, well, he, I later interviewed him for my book, Million Dollar Bedroom. Yep. Because he started Venn Solutions and the, the Million Dollar Bedroom is about a business I started in my bedroom that got big and did a lot of revenue. Matt started Venn Solution in his basement yeah, that's and awesome. his dad was employee one. His dad <laughs> still works there. That's fantastic. Yeah, employee number one, which that's is pretty great. cool. But I was interviewing him for that because that's how, you know, so many of our businesses start like that. Right. I mean, we, I, I was at a meeting last night and with a bunch of entrepreneurs talking about innovation district that KC wants to build. And uh -huh. I, said, I said, guys, we got to be, we got to cater to the army of one. Cause we were all that army of one. Absolutely. At some point. So, yeah. uh, but no, yeah, I actually met with Matt. Uh, I had some questions about Gigabook. Um, it just largely, I don't know. I just, you know, Matt is Matt. He's, yeah. he's done it. He's, uh, he's sold a company for well, 150 million bucks. Exactly. Dude, that's a lot. That's and, a lot. You know, when we talked to him, it was, it was shortly after he'd sold the company. It wasn't mm. too far after. So I'm sure a lot of people were, you know, trying to get a piece of him and they still figure are. out what's going on. They still are. Um, yeah. But it was, it was cool that he met with us and you know, I don't, I don't really remember much from the meeting as, other than he pulled up in a Ferrari. And uh, the other part was he told us, you guys have to get a tech founder. Yeah. And it, it resonated with us cause we were, we didn't know what the hell we were doing. We, from, we from give that standpoint. advice on startup hustle a lot. Um, by the way, if you do need help with your tech, fullscale.io. Awesome. Yeah. I've got to say that four times. <laughs> 
I think I got two of them out. You got of two it. in, I think. I'm working on it. I'm working on it, but I try not to make this uh, too solicity. But you know, you talk about solving problems, but a lot of people have are uh, there's a lot of great entrepreneurs. Okay, I'm a non-tech founder. Right. I tell people I write checks, not code. Yep. But it's good to have people that are good at different things in your business. You've got so to. like I'm a sales, marketing, promotion kind of guy, and that's the role that I play at that's full right. scale. And uh, Matt helps with uh, you know some of the technological needs. He helped us coin all of our uh, assessment testing and like a whole lot of different stuff. And sometimes it just helps as to sit down and talk to a guy like that that has done things on a massive level. Like right. his current company, Stackify, they process like two billion data points a day. Like that's unreal. I can't even put my arm like two, what's two billion of anything. Like I'm holding a pen. What's two billion yeah. of these? Like it's yeah, just I have you no know, idea. So it's a lot, you yeah. know. But yeah, I think it, it, but. We're going to kind of like arrive at what my point here, which is you guys asked Matt to meet, right? Right. We did. And he, and he said, okay. Yeah. So go out and find people that have done what you want to do or, or know more than you don't ever be the person that knows everything. Cause then you're just dumb because you don't. Nope. You don't. And I I just don't be afraid to ask because most of the time people say yes and it's easy to get people to sit down and talk about themselves too. It, it really is. This and, podcast proves that point. Josh. <laughs> <laughs> so back to you. Yeah. No, I think that you're absolutely right. Like ask for help. Um, you've got to, if you decide that you want to go, you know, venture back like we are, um, you've got to find somebody that's not afraid to just be in front of investors all the time. And, and I want to, I want to, I want to save that. Yeah. Uh, we'll build some suspense because you have raised a significant amount of money. Yep. Um, you're not the champion on the startup hustle alumni because Sandy Kemper keeps cashing $200 million yeah. checks. Another one, the second one. Yeah. That was a biggie. Wow. I know. Um, I saw him the day that he got that. It's like, <laughs> I'm not supposed to say it. Uh, anyway. So yeah, don't be afraid to ask people like, I, and by the way, I feel obligated in some regards because so many people were cool to me. Yeah. Knowledge is meant to be transferred. It is. So, all right. So he advised that you pick up a tech founder. Yep. And anything else? Uh, you know, that was the only thing that I remember taking away from that meeting that really resonated. I mean, there was other things that we talked about, but, you know, it's been six years ago, five years did ago. Did you ask him to invest in your business? I think at some point we did. I don't, know if, it was, I don't know if it was exactly at that point. And yeah. at that point, we hadn't raised any money. Yeah. Um, so. Matt's invested in some different businesses yeah. and um, some of them are car related yeah. and whatever. I mean, you know what you know. Yeah. So, okay. So, um, and yeah, we're going to save the, the capital amount. It's big, it's big people stick around. Do not change, (laughs) do not change to that other podcast. Um, okay. So with the dealer to dealer thing, you, you guys in a way kind of started like a marketplace. We did. Yeah, absolutely. And then I would imagine that the, uh, um, well, the inventory, did the inventory finance come next or the shipping? So shipping came next. Okay. Cause, cause a marketplace, if you can't get, a product from A to B, your ability or do it easily. Well, yeah. And it's, uh, especially with Amazon prime, like you know, yeah. launching this oh, at the dude. same time, people are spoiled by Amazon prime. Yeah. Like, uh, it's tough cause we're moving 5,000 pound pieces of metal. Mm-hmm. Uh, I always make a joke. It's, you know, our dealers expect the pieces of metal to show up at the same amount of time a pair of Nikes do. Right. Um, well, why don't they Josh? Yeah, exactly. It's, it's hard. Yeah. You know, I can't, it's hard. I mean, you can, difficult. you can maybe get nine cars on a truck, they're all not going to the same place. They're all not being picked up at the same place. Um, there, there's a lot that goes into the logistics, but we do a great job. So, so the creation of the logistics side of things, which is tricky, man. It is. Because, uh, you know, so our COO, his family used to own a, a shipping 
uh, company when we were still back in Indianapolis and just listening to some of the, the, the horror stories. And, oh yeah. And they, they were hauling, you know, they had you know, trucks like big trucks and in Indianapolis you get for that kind of stuff, you get a lot of traffic in and out uh, on the way to Detroit. Right. And a lot of the vehicle stuff. And like, you know, if you do something that stops the line, at GM because you weren't there on time or you messed it up. Like, dude, the penalties are insane. Oh yeah. Like you sign a contract, like you're going to pay like a million bucks. Like, so, I mean, they're going to crush yeah. you. They're like, what the fuck are you doing? Yeah, you better have a good, get bond. these bolts here on time. <laughs> you're right. Right. So, but, but with that, you don't know when a truck's going to break down. You don't know right. when a driver's going to do whatever. Like there's a zillion things that could happen. Um, yeah, we've had some crazy shit happen. Tell, give me a story. So one of the ones that, that really sticks with me is we had a customer that uh, bought his first car from us. And uh, for whatever reason, the seller could not produce a title. So we had to back the deal down, which is all part of our terms of use. It happens in the industry, whether you buy a car at auction or whatever car was traded in for whatever reason, the customer that traded in couldn't get a title. So we had to back the deal. down. Yeah, that's so a problem. Yeah. That's a, it makes it non-transferable basically. Right. right? right. Yeah. And so we, you know, refund him his money, everything else, but it's a, it's a real shitty first experience to, to have yeah. that car back down. Well, you know, that happens less than one-tenth of one percent of the time where that, that happens. Yeah, but you don't want that to happen on the customer's first pass. Well, not good. And definitely yeah. not on the second, which it happened on the oh, second. God. So it's like when it rains, it pours. So For the same reason? Same reason. Oh, good. And again, but this isn't is- Isn't a car dealer on some level like, I mean, isn't there, I mean, I would think there's some empathy with that. There is, there is at one time. That's you know, what, yeah, yeah, Two yeah. times you're like, God, you know, is this, because in his eyes, this happens all the time. And it's extremely infrequent. I mean, out of all of our transactions, it sure. might happen a couple of times a month. But it's it a, happened to him. Murphy's law dictates that it will happen to the same person and it will be a new client. Yeah. 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 So third time, this guy <laughs> comes back, which it's like, my God, <laughs> this, you know, I wouldn't have been back, but he came back. Um, bought a Jeep Wrangler, $30,000 Jeep. Um, the transporter hits an overpass, rips the entire top of the Jeep off. Nice. So it was one of those that, you know, that's one of those days where you just go home and you're just like, could it get any worse? But, you know, the guy still buys with us. I was, made, I was, about, to ask, right. I was um, about to ask. So by the way, sometimes those and, and, but make it right. That's what you, we had to make it right. Make it right. You make it right. And, you know, I, the Matt DeCourcy school of customer service is accredited in some industries <laughs> and, and, and shamed in others. Right. I don't believe that the customer is always right. No, they're not. People are full of shit a lot and people learn to take advantage of that. Right. I mean, car dealers yeah. don't get that reputation. I, 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 told, it, I told you I owned a ticket company. Like we yeah. had a guy buy tickets and he called in and, you know, we, so our business, we did a lot of work with venues and teams and, you know, those people, they, they have a, a VIP type inventory. It's expensive and they have a hard time selling it a lot. It's yeah. not on Ticketmaster a lot. And we had a guy buy some VIP stuff and sometimes you buy it. So you can be the source for it. But we had a guy that literally was like vehemently it's so upset and then filed a chargeback on us later because he had to stand up at a rock concert. Oh, that's rough. I was like, dude, he's like, the customer's right. I'm like, yeah, you're not here. I saw the, I saw the who a few years ago and that was, you know, I could see that audience. They were all sitting down. I mean, but this wasn't, this was like, yeah, it was a country show and it wasn't one where everyone was going to sit down all night. Right. But yeah, so sometimes people are just unreasonable. Very and unreasonable. That's a bit, you know, and like Daryl, who's our COO now, had worked at that company too. And he's like, oh, is the customer always right? No. 
No, they're not. I, in this but, case, you but know, that none of that was that dude's fault. None of it was his but fault. If when you make it right though, and you and you demonstrate that to clients, sometimes those people end up being your best clients. Well, and, and with that, you know, insurance covers those things. Sure, but insurance is slow. Yeah, and so we ended up writing him a check for the whole price of the vehicle and said, hey. We'll figure it out with the insurance. At that point, Even were, you, were you basically funding that yourself yeah, too? Yeah. Yeah. And we did, but we ended up getting money back from the insurance company a little later. But I don't think a lot of companies would have said, they would have said, hey, we've got to run it through insurance because that's the process. The so, moral of the story is get a shorter transport truck. Right. Or or just let the air out of the tires yeah. halfway. Yeah, exactly. Probably not a good idea. Don't go under those nine foot ridges or whatever it was. Okay. So dealer to dealer, the wholesale the place. Now, are you able to tell me like what kind of volume the marketplace transacts? We don't really share it. Okay, um, that's fine. Yeah, because we've got a couple of big competitors that are sure. that are after yeah. us and we're kind of going after them. I, I normally don't well. ask that question yeah. um, for, for the same reasons. It's I'm like it's thousands yeah. and thousands of cars. Sure, sure. Well, that that was maybe a better yeah. question. Yeah. So um, and you know, some it, that that transfer back and forth, money isn't always quick. No, it's and we, not we always handle all the payment processing. Right, um, right. So we handle payment processing, the title work, all that stuff too that goes in, in those tra- in those transactions. So, so when you say inventory finance, is this like a, almost like a floor planning it kind is of finance, exactly like floor planning? Okay, yeah, okay, yeah. We call it our float product to try to differentiate ourselves a little bit, but it's right. a, it's a floor plan product. Well, I say floor plan because I mentioned that I worked in the music industry as in, uh, musical instruments. Oh, okay, yeah. so we worked with like Textron, GE, different companies like that. That because uh, you know people don't realize. Okay, so when you drive by the Ford place later and you see this giant place and it's full of cars. That's right. Someone had to pay for those or someone is paying for them or someone is going to have to pay for them. Right. And they're expensive. They are. And so like in that case, Ford motor Credit's probably going to be the floor plan sure. company because yeah, it's yeah. a big OEM. Well, um, and that's how they get that, get them out the door. Right. Yeah. Um, but you know, the people that we floor plan are your mom and pa, like the smaller yeah. dealerships that are mostly the buyers on our platform. So, um, and, and like I said, maybe everything I've learned from the automotive industry, I may have learned from Matt Watson and his <laughs> friends, but, um, most dealerships are not, are not like a straight out new car dealer. No, I would say it's I, like, I, like 10%. Yeah, it's the, really small. Numbers are all over the place, but you know, kind of the number that gets thrown around is there's a hundred thousand dealers, um, nationwide and, you know, 10 to 15% are new car franchises. Right. Um, you know, those numbers fluctuate all the time and sure. some of the independents you don't know, like we have the guys that, you know, might have a dealer's license only sell 10 cars and, and a year. Yeah. That's what I was going to say is that, uh, and when that's come up is and Matt pointed this out that they may count as a car dealer, but they might be that person. So, because they're, they go to auction. Right. And they buy a car and then they flip it and they make 200 bucks and they do that once a month. And yeah. that's like what they do on a Saturday every now and then. Yeah. So, but you don't deal with folks like that's not your, they're, if they're, if they're a licensed dealer, they can be on our platform. Okay. Um, but the, our core customer is somebody that's probably selling 15, 20 cars a month retail as far as the buy side of the marketplace. So do you guys facilitate? So, you know, there are 10 million things that people are going to complain about the whole process of buying a car. Right. And one of the things that annoys me is like how long it takes. Yep. All the papers that I got to fill out. Now I've noticed that that's gotten a lot better. It has. Over like, especially like the last five years. Yep. 10 years ago, it was bad. It was brutal. It was really slow. <laughs> like you had to get you like the whole, oh man, I gotta go buy a new car. Oh, I mean, my and first- should be exciting and fun. And then you're sitting there and you're tapping your, your, I said, don't tap the table before, but you're like, <laughs> oh, God, when am I going to get out of here? And you're like a caged animal by the time you leave. You know, and that was back in the day that was by design too. Um, they, they wore you out. Um, so I was a finance manager, my first yeah. job in the car business, yeah. 2005. Make them wait. And 
you're printing everything on a dot matrix printer. Um, you know, it's, so that's slow. Uh, back then, you know, before, you know, Venn solutions and all these other, they were Venn um, stickers at one yeah. point for a similar kind of thing. Yeah. Like, but your, your dealer management software, yeah. for example, that was all command prompt. Some guys still use that. I'll still go into dealerships and do visits occasionally. And there's a guy that's got an old command prompt, prompt screen up. Cause that's what he's been doing for 30 nice. years. But, um, Hey, whatever works, right? whatever works, but it was, uh, super slow. I think the process was just wear customers out. And then by the time they got what's in the box is what they call it, the finance box, you know, they were worn out and they were just going to sign whatever. So yep. whatever warranty, whatever the interest rate was, they didn't really care. They just wanted to get the hell out of it. But there. that's changed. It's changed a lot. I mean, I, I think the car industry in general has changed and I've, and I, you know, I, I'm the, I'm that nosy or like chatty customer, like, cause I'm a sales guy. Right. So I'll talk to the guys while we're doing the deal or whatever. And, you know, so like, and you know, all the, the, the salesmen are like, oh man, this has changed. It's getting harder and harder to make any money. It has. This. For and them, the, yeah. the Well, the margin's tight. The margin's tight. And that's where we it, come in. The at, internet changed. Yeah. And I think that, you know, wholesale, there was not a whole lot of internet in wholesale, but it was on the retail side. Customers are coming in. Most of the customers, when they go to buy a car, know more about the car than the sales guy. Sure. Um, you know, but on the wholesale and side. They, but they know how much it should cost. They, they at least are seeing it listed. Right. They're like, Hey, I see this online. It might be in Greensboro, North Carolina, but it's $10,000. So in that customer's mind, anything above that might be high. That's right. But that, well, but there's also different markets. Like when I live in Colorado, Jeeps cost more. Yeah. It's like, it's just a different market. It is. Yeah. I mean, you have the market arbitrage that's, that exists, you know, but people are still going to search, you know, 500 mile, thousand mile radius. Yeah. They're going to look at the cheapest one and they're going to, they're going to try to hold everybody else to that standard, which is yeah. fine. Um, but you know, we saw on the wholesale side that as margins got compressed for new car dealerships who are, mo- who are our sellers and independent dealers who are our buyers, they had to find other ways to be more efficient. So that's where we really built this was with that in mind, like how can the new car store get more money for their trade, sell it more efficiently, faster, clear out that wholesale inventory that like you said, costs money. And then the independent guy, if you go to a physical auction and go run around all day, some of those guys go to three a week. Right. You're talking five, six hours a day at one of those. And you don't know what you're going to get. You, you might sit there all day. You right. might do a lot of different things. And then you talk about that wild fluctuation because when you're selling anything and margins get tight, like, well, overpaying for something, it's kind of ugly. Right. Um, have you ever seen The Profit? The Marcus uh, Lemonis? I, I've uh, not. I know what it so is. He, yeah. So, you know, he goes and tries to fix businesses. And one of them, there was a car dealer and the guy just had this chronic problem of overpaying. And then, you know, and, and I always used to tell, so I was a sales manager at one point. I said, don't fall in love with your inventory guys. No. Like it's worth what it's worth it and is. it's worth what someone will pay for it. Yeah. And you make your money when you buy it. Right. Uh, sure. Sure. And, and so with us, it's like, but we, we but, do try to get guys to buy cars outside of their normal comfort zone. You know, our average sure. transport trip is, you know, several hundred miles. That's not like the guy going up to the local auction 20 miles away. It, well, in this case, this guy was overpaying for cars and then like he wasn't, he didn't want to correct the issue. So like the right. car's got a market value of 28 grand and it's going down. Right. And he's got 32 in it and sitting there, wait, someone's going to pay for it. No, they're not. And eventually like it thinned everything out. Right. And then they didn't have any selection and then overhead was expensive and stuff like that. So with like inventory finance and stuff like that, how do you deal with that? Because can you prevent someone from making dumb decisions? You could theoretically. I mean, we kind of, we control. Your marketplace kind of helps that. With the marketplace. Inherently, right? Right. You control the supply. We know like the value of these cars. We can also see how many other competing offers there were, for example. And we know what they are in relation to, you know, black book or wholesale value. Um, But you can't always control it, of course. And I, you know, I think that the thing you have to let, you have to trust that your buyers within the kind of the boundaries you set for them are going to make sound decisions. Sure. And then 
the way that you kind of back off of that is, okay, it's 45 days old. It's 90 days old. So you're paying curtailments to write these cars down. So you don't sure. have as much finance, but. Yeah. Know. And that, and well, when we talked about floor planning, that was something that would come up because, you know, after, uh, in, in a lot of retail stores, you go in wherever you go and you're like, wow, this 70% off, they're trying to get that out the door. Cause they've probably had it for like a year. Right. And now not only is that sitting there and they're pay- they've been paying floor planning or interest. So floor planning is financing your inventory through wherever you do it and you, and it, you're going to pay interest on it. Right. So the, it, much like interest and math work, the shorter, the better, get right. it out the door and move it. But it, you get to a certain point where it becomes what they call black tag. Yep. And now like with companies like GE or Textron and some of those failed, I don't even know if they're still around right. anymore, but, and, and this might be why, but they would not only, they would reduce your credit line by the amount of black tag inventory that you had. Yeah. So it could really, so you're, if you're running tight, because the way they look at that is they say, if you're not smart enough to buy things that are going to sell quickly, why would we give you even more money to buy more? Yeah, you're, you're digging a hole. Right. Yeah. And, you know, retail's challenged right now. It is. So, and with that, things change. Uh, any good business that lasts is, goes through metamorphosis and evolution and change. So the vehicle and car industry is going to change. It's changed massively. I mean, to your point on in turning inventory, I mean, I, they have a lot of inventory management solutions that are out there now. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and that is just telling guys, hey, this is what you should sell the car for. This is the market day supply. This is right. you know the average turn of this car. This is what the last listing price of the last five that sold in your market were. So there's yeah, a lot we of did, we did an episode on that. I told you yeah. with uh, Jason Rice at Lot Pop, yep, and exactly. that's and that business is doesn't do anything other than try to help you keep up with your pricing, right? And, and that and if you have a lot of cars, that can be a lot. It and can be a and lot. then also, who's doing it? Because so once again, back to the ticket business, um, it was very difficult for let me to for me to let people manually price our inventory sometimes because sometimes you're like, you got to get rid of this. Like right. this show is in two days and it looks <laughs> like it's going to rain. Let's dump these. Yep. And, but sometimes people are like, Oh, I feel the employees be like, I don't like marking it down because it's your money and not mine. I'm like, it's going to be nobody's money if we eat these. Exactly. But that can be really variable. Now as things as and I haven't been in that business for quite a while now, but their software came in and was algorithmically pricing certain things right. and all a lot of that data transfer and StubHub and, you know, like, and then, and then, but then the, the teams got the uh, teams, venues and artists got their hands on that data. And then the face value of things changed because right. they look at that data and they're going, wait a minute, you're selling for 160 bucks, but we're getting 90. Yeah. Dynamic, like, I'm leaving, dynamic. I'm leaving more money on the, t- almost more money on the table than I'm picking up. Right. And then, it, dynamic so pricing, isn't that what they call it? It is dynamic. Yeah. Well, dy- dynamic pricing is, uh, well for yes, and ticketing it is, yeah. but they're, they have to base it on something. Right. So yeah. And that, and, and I don't really spend a whole lot of time looking at tickets, but even that's changed too. Cause you know, normally they would want you to just sell out everything really quickly. Uh huh. And, but the demand, the peak demand for tickets is right when they go on sale, like, like literally, Hey, 10 AM on yep. Saturday morning. And then, and the days that prior to the event, cause some people don't buy things nine months in advance or right. like, I mean, they're going to go, they're going to decide if they want to go the day before or the day of. Right. And then it made it even easier to buy things, electronic tickets. And so, I don't know. It just, it really changed a lot. Yeah. 
And uh, the teams really, by the way, I bought Live Nation stock when I started figuring out that they were doing that. And uh, it was at seven bucks a share. Last time I checked, it was at 45. Nice. Did you keep it? Uh, yeah, because they're, well, they're recapturing their own margin. You could see yeah. it and that's going to equate to profit. Right. But so that's the question is, and you know, like you look at like, and and we don't have to keep talking about Lot Pop, but they're just like trying to, the, the Jason will tell you like, if we can help someone get a car out faster or get a hundred dollars more or whatever. It just right. makes, and then another thing too, is some of it's just convenience because it it's not always the, the, it's not always the activity that everyone wants to wrap their arms around much like the shipping logistics of getting a car <laughs> from a, a car from Winfield, Kansas to here. Right. And that was your hometown, right? It was. Okay. So there's not a whole lot of stuff coming in and out of Winfield. No. So no, that's, a, that's a whole nother thing. It's a difficult place to get stuff to. So you're the COO. You're in charge of all this. Right. Oh, man. Yeah, I don't handle Be- it. Better handle you it than me, Josh. This is not my, <laughs> I'm not that detail oriented. No, I give a lot of shout out to our transport team. Oh, uh, I bet. You know, we've got, we've only got four folks on our transport team, which is amazing. Okay. And so we've thousands we, of cars a month. It, that is crazy. It is. Considering they that job. they go, like I passed it, that I drove back from Indianapolis when I visited my wife's parents last weekend. And, you know, I was, you pass the transports and I, I was even thinking about that. Well, there was a truck hauling trucks. Yep. So I asked my daughter how many trucks that would be if there were four or whatever. And I was <laughs> impressed that she got it right. But yeah, I mean, not, a, it's difficult, not a whole lot going on there. It um, is. So what, before we get into the, the moment of this massive amount of cash that you raised, right. Um, I, I want to complete the, the, the point about the evolution and the change because yeah. you're looking at a lot of different things. Like, I mean, so the, we'll call, say the major American motor companies, they, I saw it, Watson's a, a huge Tesla guy Yep, and he had posted a link on Facebook that is like, okay, we're, they're not doing hybrids. They're doing, they're doing all electric. Right. Um, some of this stuff's going to have a big impact on everything and then driverless cars. And I mean, that's coming. It will. It's yeah. going to happen. It will. Happen. I, I'm okay with it, man. Yeah. Like I just drove eight hours one way and then did it again four days later. I would have been cool with just kind of kicking back on yeah. that ride. That's yeah, brutal. You know, some of that's coming and things change, but what, where do you, do you see any of that affecting you? Like the, the, I think the overwhelming opinion on some things is that, the auto industry is going to change the, the retail side of it could change significantly with that. Yeah, I think it will. I think it's all a matter of when, right. Um, you know, it's, uh, but but you still might buy you, if you have a driverless car, you still might go buy the car. You're going to go buy the car somewhere. Yeah. I think, I don't think car ownership is going away anytime soon. Uh, you know, there's a pretty cool study that was done by university of Texas out of Austin that, uh, was talking, was kind of, it used Austin as the bellwether, you know, for, polling people on whether or not they would go with it, they were, if they would have or own vehicles and overwhelmingly people over 25 said, yes, we'll own vehicles. I would. And I uh, would, I mean, some people think that there's just going to be this fleet of autonomous vehicles that you're going to get in and out of every time. The thing is who's going to take care of them. Who's going to clean them? Like, I mean, there's, there's a sense of identity and ownership and personalization. And like, you you mentioned you have kids, right? Yeah. Like privacy. My kids tear things up, dude. Good luck with a car seat in this fleet, you know, uh, good point. You know, so good point. I, I think there'll be car ownership. I don't think it will be, you know, the numbers that we see today, uh, but th- it's always going to exist. And then some of it too has to change, like because you know people are moving into these urban environments where it's not even feasible to have a car, right? And that's I think that's where things like Uber, 
but were pretty impactful and disruptive because, you know, like taxis were expensive and they were sometimes hard to flag down. Right. And then, you know, like in Kansas City, we don't deal with this a lot. But if you live in Manhattan. Yeah. And I mean, New York, not yeah, Kansas. The, like, those, I mean, where are you going to park? Right. Those are going to be the cities that are affected right. first by the struggle is vehicles. real. Yeah. The struggle is real. And may, maybe, maybe for the better. Okay. Everybody loves this topic everyone's chasing it. I was on a call about it before you came in. Right. You guys have raised some money. We have. I know we built this up. I'm trying to build this up. So we're <laughs> winning around, winning around. So, and this is all available online. You can, yeah, that's how I may have read about it. Right. But let's talk a little bit about raising capital. Sure. And, uh, and along the way, like, let's try to help people figure out how to do it. Yeah. I think that the first thing you've got to do is build your team. Whether that's you and depending on the problem you're trying to solve, if you're the person that can do all those things, yep. I, I rarely see that. Um, we built a really good team. So my co-founder, Justin, um, he's the best fundraiser I've ever been around or seen. It's and a full-time I, job. It's a full-time job. It. It's a sales job too. Oh, it's, it's yeah. very sales heavy. And uh, <laughs> and, I mean, why, just, and why? Because you're going to hear no a lot. Right. A lot. And yeah, you have to be able to like skin. I, I've seen him, you know, continue to, times where I would have just said, screw it and walked away. Like he, he continues to push at it. So I give it's him, hum, it's humbling. I give him that, all the credit. The in the world it's it's, it's humbling. so humbling. Yeah. Cause and, the thing is, is until, until those people write you a check, they're technically, it's their job to get the best deal out of you. So right. kind of an adversarial, it's, uh, I, I compare fundraising to what I think that salary arbitration would be in baseball right they're gonna tell they want you on the team and they want to give you a contract and they want to tell you enough bad shit about yourself that you'll accept a lower price but not so much that they ruin your confidence and you're gonna suck next year yeah i think we've we've had we've experienced a little bit of all of that yeah um and then you know but once you got some funds you it made it easier to get more it made it makes it a lot easier to get more so where did that start because you had a seed round at one point right and that was significant yeah so early on the the Three of three of the four of us actually used our own money to kind of bootstrap the business yeah, for the first, for the first year. Um, then we got into an incubator called Five Hundred Startup in San mm, Francisco. I'm familiar. Yeah, that's um, cool. Did you actually go to San Francisco for it? So Justin moved out there full time. So that was kind of when we made the decision that Justin was going to be the CEO because I had two kids back here, and my wife was like, "You can go back and forth. You can go visit." Dude, and these are the things you've got to deal with. You've got to yeah, deal with it. And I was, you know, I was still, um, we were still trying to run the company here because we were, we were still, we were inspecting cars at dealerships and trying to sell cars here locally too. And it was, there was basically four of us. Um, so, and, and you're still headquartered in Kansas city, right? Much, right. much like full <laughs> That's number three. I'll get there. Yeah. See, now I just get, I get, I just paint that up on the outro <laughs> and we're good. <laughs> so, um, yeah. So after demo day, we were able to, to, procure more funds for the seed round ended up raising close to $4 million in the seed round, um, which was instrumental for mar marketplaces are very, very hard to build. It takes a lot of money, especially, you know, outside of we're, we're probably the marketplace that has the largest order value of any item that you could think of is cars. I mean, you know, there's not really home marketplaces, so to speak. Like, can, can we talk for a second about why marketplaces are hard to build? Because a lot yeah. of people come to full scale and want they have a marketplace that they want to build. And I've had experience with this. And um, it's because when you first build it, it's empty. It's completely empty. And and, and just because you build it does not mean anyone's going to show up no. or care. And, and much like um, a Saturday night 
at 11 o'clock, if you walk into a bar and you're having a good time and there's no one there, you turn around and you walk right back yep. out. Yeah. They could have so the best drinks on the planet. It's, that you're it not is the around. empty market problem and yep. empty marketplace problem. And, you know, in order to fix that, you either have to spend a shitload of money to promote it or you got to give whatever it is in their way right. or it's it, whatever. So, yeah. so how did you overcome that? So it's pretty crazy. So we're, we're going to new car stores and we're walking in and saying, Hey, here's two guys that we were, we did sales at Mannheim, but trust us, our checks are good. Like that's, that's a tough sale, right? Yeah, Especially sure. when you're going up against billion dollar companies yeah. that are already, already have their business. Right. So we, we stuck our neck out. We said, Hey, if you guys sell cars on our platform, we're going to go ahead and cut you the checks day one, even if we don't have title. So we kind of flipped it back on the customer. Speed the money up. Speed the money yep. up. Like yep. hopefully you don't cash it till the title comes in, but you can cash it before, like at the but same you time it. you send you it, have you it. have it. You're not you have stuck waiting for me to, it's checks in the mail, dude. Yeah. yeah. So that, that guy was like, that you don't know. <laughs> not too many people in the right. car business are, you know, putting, you know, and th- there was times where we had close to the money we had out in checks and we're kind of hoping, you know, well, hopefully, you know, cash flow wise things clear when they're supposed to clear and you can't, if we would have bounced one check to any dealer, it would have game been over. over. It would game over. Game over. So we took a huge risk. Reputation management yep. is, is rough there. Like with, yep. with at full scale, we did the same thing. Like some of that. And I was telling you before we started, like, I mean, look, if you're listening, every business has this problem. And and by the way, we're not even to the big part of the money you raised. Right. And that can still come up. Yes. Yeah. Cash flow is a lifeblood of your business. Yep. And it's difficult to predict when it comes in sometimes. Right. Like, or once, and you know what? Sometimes people, they fail. Yeah. Business and, goes out and now suddenly you're like, oh shit, that's a lot of money. They, how much do they owe us again? Well, and, and fortunately now we have, in addition to all the money we've raised, we've got back credit facilities that are backstops to handle daily payment flows. Cause you, we have, you know, millions of dollars a day yep. going through in value of cars. Yep. So, and when we were um, talking, like when we we're, that's what Sandy Kemper's business at C2FO right. is. It's basically a, a accounts receivable financing. Yep. And you know, like they're dealing with like, you look at like Costco. Yeah. Costco doesn't buy five from you. They buy 5 million. Right. And now, you know, there's just like, it, it's on both sides of everything. Okay. So you, so were you having problems filling up the marketplace before the money, the first, the seed round or yeah, because is that what the, or is that what the seed round well, fixed? So early on before the seed round, we were, you know, we had the idea that this was going to be a subscription based marketplace and that was a horrible idea. So we, we pivoted from that really, really fast. What, went to what, why was that horrible? Um, cause it didn't give any preference to someone that bought a thousand cars as opposed to someone that bought one. Well, or? there's, there's part of that. Um, you know, we were just trying to figure out the logistics of how things work, how the inspection looked, who, you know, which iteration of the inspection our dealer is going to trust the most, but then also not spend days trying to figure out, sure. you know, what, what's in it. Um, so you guys take a, uh, is it transactional? Yeah. So transactional, which is um, scalable for the dealer. Like if they don't have to buy, if they buy 3000 or three, it's well, and, 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 that already exists, right? If they buy a car at the auction, it's a transactional fee as well or sure. anywhere else. So they, they kind of already used to that. Um, you just want to provide more value than the incumbents. And sure. I think if you can do that, you can get people to start to kind of get that flywheel spinning in the marketplace. But what, it, what are a couple, I think you had a very important point there. What are, you know, the definition of providing value is different, right? Uh, it can be convenience. Yeah. Can, by the way, do not underrate that. Yeah. Like I, I, I that's me. I will pay more for it to be convenient. Absolutely. Because I'm impatient and I got other shit to do. Yeah. We want transactions on backlot. We want dealers to be able to hop on there and see, I'm looking at a car. I know if I'm going to make an offer, I know exactly how much transport's going to cost. I have a range of how many days it's going to take for the vehicle to show up. And I know what it, pretty much what I'm going to spend reconditioning that vehicle sure. from day one. Uh, that's how we want them to be able to make those decisions. So 
um, you know, we kind of talked about Amazon a little bit earlier, but it's that people are used to buying things that way. And so yeah. we, we try to, you know, replicate that style of buying as much as we can. Okay. So you get the marketplace full. Yep. You're providing value. Another round. Yeah. At that point we were only in, you know, three or four States. So we were kind of like Missouri, Kansas. We we've, our growth strategy has always been grow from the middle of the country out. So sure. we're very lucky. If, in if the you sense can't that, be good where you're at, you're probably not going to be good. Right. Is right. that fair? Right. And, you know, with the marketplace, especially that's, you know, with vehicles, it's very important to have uh, geographic proximity on some level. Yeah, I was like, going to say, and that's come up because in Kansas City, we're here in the middle of the country, which yeah. is, I mean, some people are Kansas City, you're the 25th biggest market. Dude, we actually have a, a, a geographic, there's a lot of logistics and transport. So we're right. Right in the middle of the country. Yeah. Yeah. It, it's half as far to California from here as it is from New York. That's right. So, yeah. so that worked out in your favor. It worked out in our favor. Um, you know, you've got a big open space in the West that you kind of yeah. have to jump over out sure. there. But uh, otherwise, yeah, these tangential markets, like rolling those out have made a lot of sense for us. So, so the next round was? Next round was our A round is roughly $8 million. Um, and that was kind of money that was going to allow us to prove that we could actually scale this thing outside of, you know, four or five States. Okay. So that's crazy. So think about that. Like, and this is what's funny. It's uh, cause I had to like, talking to venture capital people and investors, it's kind of weird. You're like, I need $8 million to prove that this will work. Right. That's what you just said. I mean, on some levels, not yeah, that it right. won't, not that it won't work regionally, but right. that it will scale and go that's, somewhere. Right. And they're cool with that. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, okay, sure. That sounds reasonable. Yeah, I think if you have the numbers to support yeah. it, um, and and you have the team yeah. <laughs> at that point for an A, that's kind of what they're looking but for. Pe- but people that are listening right now are going, "Wait a minute, did I hear that right?" Because, but it's true. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I mean, even startups that have done nothing, if you have a founder that has a history of success, yeah, I mean, they'll show up. They'll be like, "Look, I need four million dollars to figure out if we can get one user." Yeah, and some people will take that bet. They will. Some people don't. Yeah, it's um, you know, before I got into this game, that was just crazy to me. But I, that's uh, my point. Is yeah, it seems weird until you start in because if you hear that, like you're like, no way, I couldn't even get like ten thousand dollars to start this, and right. someone's getting four million bucks. Well, th- th- but those are people that are proven. Yeah, I mean, I, I say the investors like the jockey or the horse. If you get both, or you're in pretty good shape, right? But that still doesn't mean you're going to win. No, so. it doesn't. And I, you know, I think one thing I want to be cautious with and kind of let people know is like you know, the amount of money you raise is not a definition of success of the business. No, it's sales, that, it's revenue. It, exactly. Sales, yeah. revenue, transaction. Uh, how much are you disrupting whatever you're trying to disrupt? God, will you just say and, that again? And, because like, I mean, yeah, it's, it's not, important. To, it's, I think people are, startup founders are so obsessed with like raising capital. Like, no, you should stop and sell something too. No, we, because that's what validates your, your concept. So, you know, it's something that we never really wanted to put out there. A lot of the people that invest in us at some point in time want us to put it out there because it's, it's good for them. And yeah. there's times when it's good for us as well. Um, you know, when we closed our series a round, we actually didn't do a press release for almost six months. Sure. Nobody knew we raised it. Um, cause there wasn't, we just couldn't see a point. Like we wanted to be that underdog in the business. We mm-hmm. wanted to take people by surprise and it, that was never the validation for us. Well, that's a signal flare. Yeah. I mean, there's people that are looking just for that. Right. I mean, the, when I started Gigabook, the, there was a signal flare because uh, I was into it, had purchased a different company for like 400 million bucks. And I was like, okay, there's something here. Yeah. And it was, and you know, and then, you know, the, the problem with that was, well, once that signal flares up, someone's got a big head start on you. Yeah. So you got to keep that in mind too. Yeah. Okay. Then the big one. Right. The big one. Yep. So at this point, 
I'm guessing that raising money is actually becoming a little easier. A lot easier. Because so, you've got money behind you. Right. And then you start getting to the point where, okay, you maybe have enough here that even if you do fuck it up, there's something salvageable there. There is. For yeah. someone else. Right. So th- putting a large amount of money in and really making it grow makes sense. And hey, we want you to get it right. But it, it, it sounds weird because this is a large amount of money. But on some levels, you've become a much safer investment yeah. at this point. Yeah. I think the more money you've raised, the more that that people do see that it's sure. a safer investment. And um, yeah, I think they see that there's, to, to your point, like there's a lot of different ways at that point when a business gets to that size that it can go. And then also, you're also proving that you can scale something nationwide, something huge that's going to disrupt an industry. Sure. Um, so, so yeah, that was a... And and was, how much was that? That was 25 million. Dun, dun, dun. Yeah, so that was a, that was a big one. Yeah, so, and that was recently, right? Was yeah. That, was that last year yeah, or was that this year? Uh, this year. Okay. Yeah. Being tw- 2019 for right. those of you that are listening in the future. Yeah. And, and that one went really, really fast. I mean, it was just a, the, the process happened fast and, you know, I always tell people raise money when you don't need it. Boom. So, and yeah, I think a, a couple of things and you're far more of an expert on this than I am, but also don't wait till the last minute. No. <laughs> like no. I think people do that a lot. They're like, I'm out of money but I'm going to go raise it. I'm like, uh, what's your runway? Like five weeks. You're fucked. Just close. Right. You're done. Cause I mean, the thing is, is there's, and why the question is why? Well, first off, there's a lot of people out there that are looking for capital and there's a finite amount of capital. Yep. And the people that are giving out the capital have to try to take, they get a lot, they have, a, they have, they have infinite options, right? There are literally infinite numbers there, of there places really where you can write an investment check. And obviously some are better than others, but if you want to stick around as an investor, you gotta, you gotta wait for your pitch. Yeah. So yeah, it's uh where, where some of these investors on, uh, as these tear down, were these different people or were people coming back to the well? Both. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, the, the leads of each round were different. Uh, a lot of the participants throughout the rounds were the same. So 25 million bucks is a lot, but it, you know, there are even some funds that won't write you a check smaller than that. Yeah. Yeah. There's a, you know, especially in a, in a B round, I mean, that's uh, you know, I think a lot of them are looking, depending on what percent of the company yeah. they have, you know, that they want to own. You know, they're, they're Weird, weirdest thing you'll ever hear the, the first time you hear it is, well, we don't write checks less than 10 million. Right. You're, you're too early for us. Yeah. Yeah. But if well, have- well, why is that? Well, we don't, we don't do checks for less than 10 million. You're like, what? To who? But yeah. that's the way it is. And, and, but the question's why. But, you know, some of these funds have 500 million bucks in them and yep. they don't want a bunch of million dollar portfolio items to have to deal with. No. Right? No, it's, uh, you know, it, it just, the limited partners don't want to get that many updates right. too. Yeah. So. And then there's some other things too. It's like you actually mentioned that you're talking about like LPs and stuff like that. But, um, and this was something that, you know, I, I wasn't really sure about because institutional investors don't want you to be like an LLC. Right. The reason why they don't want a K one. Yeah. It's crazy. They'd like literally, and that is literally saying, I don't want you to make money because I don't want to have to track it. I want it to stay in the company or I want to do, but you need to know that as a founder, because you want your, you want your objectives to be lined up with your investors. Right. And not, because if you're like trying to set something up, if you're expecting to make, like take money off of the table as the business becomes profitable, Certain types of investors aren't, they don't want that. Yeah. They don't want it. They want it all going back in 100% of it. And so you mentioned earlier, you're like, I got a wife, I got kids, you know, stuff like that. Like you have to have some forward thinking about that and not just say, okay, the money's there. Um, But that's weird. So, and I always like to keep it real here. Like 
And what was it like to cash a twenty-five million dollar check? I know it wasn't all in your bank account, but it's twenty-five. You it, wake it up it. one day and there's twenty-five million dollars in your bank account. There's twenty-five million in your bank account, and uh, you had to at least look at that and go, "Wow, that's pretty cool." I, I, I did. Uh, it, it. I don't know if it still sunk in, and we've we've really tried to stay really modest with things. Um, I think as a founding team, you know, we were before we announced that we raised that round. I think when we were looking at pay throughout the company. We were like the twenty-seventh, twenty-eighth, and twenty-ninth and 30th highest paid people in the company. Yeah. So that's, I mean, that's what we live by. Like we practice what we preach. It's like at stay some, humble. At, at some point though, you got to cash some checks too. Right. Which is okay. Right. I mean, at that point, and I'm not going to, I don't have any interest in asking you about your personal situation, but as these things stage by too, is also as an owner where you get the ability, like in, if you're trying to raise a seed round, don't, don't try to be clawing back half the money for no. yourself. Like that's just not going to go over that well. Like I hear that a lot of people are like, well, I, I want to sell 30% of the equity. And I want to keep 15% of that money for me. You know, and that's not what investors want to hear. No, I mean, we were, uh, but it's perfectly normal on the way. As things move down the yeah, line, I, would say I mean, t- it's typically it's, it's like, a lot more reasonable to request. Yeah, like B or later, a lot of times people will take a secondary. Yeah, um, but you know, for us, it was you know, we took our A, and uh, we just never even had time. We were so busy, we didn't give ourselves a pay raise, even though we, we said we were going to. And you know, so like a year went by, and we were like, oh shit, you know, we were going to give ourselves a raise a year ago, but we didn't do it. I mean, it, when you're busy, it is often a lot harder to spend money because yeah. you're actually busy doing it other stuff. Yeah. And I think at some level of success too, you're just kind of like, all right, I mean, this is a scorecard now. Right. This is just like, hey, you got it. And, you know, Matt will talk about that. I'm not going to pretend to be <laughs> at that kind of level. But, you know, and just also like, uh, you know, one of the things that Watson will talk about is uh, the sale of Venn Solutions and how anticlimactic it was. Right. Cause it's like all this stress and like everything is like, is the deal going to go through? And then it's done and it's just really kind of quiet. Yeah. And I, like, like the next day, like you wake up and there's like, just like this ungodly amount of money in your bank account and you don't work where you used to work. Yeah. Yeah. I think, I mean, <laughs> he did of, for a while after that, but still like kind of on that same level, like when you're raising money and you, know, you go through and you raise these rounds and you see these big checks going into your bank account, like there's, there's kind of some anticipation before everything closes. The financing docs are all signed and all that. Yeah, I think the people, next day, people don't understand, though, that that's not, like I said, that's not in your bank account. No, it's the company. And, and by the way, that can actually be more stressful it, because it, oh, you it, have it, this like ridiculous amount of responsibility. Like people are expecting you to perform. If it's not more stressful, there's something wrong with you. Right. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And and these are people that are, I mean, these are smart people that are going to ask you very direct questions. Right. It's really funny, too. Like, why aren't you spending this money faster? Yeah. We, yeah, the, it, it's the whole, the whole fundraising process can be so backwards. Yeah. So yeah, it, backwards. You're can. like, wait a minute. You don't want me to make money? No. We want you to make this as big as fat as you can now. Yeah. Yeah. And there's I a don't here about your four-year plan to spend <laughs> this money. What are you going to do to spend it faster? Fail fast. Fail fast. So. Yeah. There's there's some of that. I think it's, you have to choose your investors wisely. And I think we've done a really good job. They're your partners, got, man. They, they, they become your partners. Your partners and, and, and you have to like, I don't know. I, the, <laughs> the funny thing, I'm so transparent. And candid because when it comes to this kind of stuff, because I just assume if you have $10 million in your bank account that you are smart enough to figure it out anyway. So I'll just tell you up front. Yeah. These are all the things that are wrong with my company. They don't expect you to be perfect. No. Like, they're giving you the money to help you fix your problems, make yourself awesome and do it faster. No. And it's refreshing when yeah. you, if you have a board that, um, you know, you can walk into a board meeting and say, man, last month it sucked. Oh yeah. You know, this we didn't, we didn't do this, this, and this correctly. 
This is what we're changing. You know, this is how we're going to do it. We're going to fix it right now. Right. And having smart people that you can bounce those ideas off of and, and get ideas on how to fix things or how to move forward. And, and those people understand it. Like yeah. you're, they, what, what, what they don't want to hear is that same meeting four times later where you have just continually made the same mistake. Right. All or, the way up to it. Like, or where it's all sunshine and roses and it really wasn't. They yeah. Well, that, that well that's why I said like yeah. the candor, like yeah. just be honest and upfront and like transparent yep. and like, cause well, first off, you're going to lose your credibility if you're not. Right. And then like, this is, I mean, who knows, dude, maybe you, maybe you have a $200 million round later. I don't right. know, but you can't burn those bridges on the way to that. No. It's important. So, okay. If you get a chance, go check. Uh, well, you said there's not too much to the website. Google no. Backlog Cars. Google Backlog Cars. You know, we are hiring. So that's always there good. There you go. Uh, we're Where? for folks, uh, mostly Everywhere. here in Kansas city. Okay. Uh, we do have some sales folks kind of sporadically, you know, different places throughout the country. We're still hiring some up in the Northeast. Uh, but most of it here in KC. Cool. Well, hopefully someone's listening to this at sales cars and goes, checks and goes and checks it out. Yeah. Uh, anyway, Josh Parsons here with backlot cars, co-founder and COO. You guys are definitely tearing it up and doing meaningful stuff here in my hometown. I appreciate it. Yeah. Awesome. Thanks for having me. See you next time. Thanks so much for listening to this episode of Startup Hustle with Matt DeCarsi and Matt Watson. For more great content and to stay up to date, visit startuphustle.xyz. And if you enjoyed today's episode, please rate and subscribe. And we'll catch you next time on Startup Hustle.